Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Hello, little heroes. This is Monster Donut. <laughs> Hey, my name is Nick Borain. I play Kronos in Percy Jackson. Welcome. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And today we have a very, very special guest. You may know her from the Black Sails podcast, Fathoms Deep, or as the staff writer in the Percy Jackson and the Olympians writer's room. It is the wonderfully talented Daphne Olive. Hi, Daphne. Hi. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. (laughs) I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We're so happy to have you and to finally get to talk about this incredible project that you have been working on. It is really, it is so stunning. I'm so glad you're liking it. Thank you. Before we dive all the way in, would you like to say something about yourself? Introduce yourself a little bit for those who may not know your voice or your background. Um, I am former jewelry designer turned black sales podcaster 
turned writer because John Steinberg and Dan Schatz invited me to become one. Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So for our audience's sake, I know that in roles like ours, the definition of our job varies from person to person and from project to project often. How would you define your role on Percy Jackson and the Olympians? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I, um, I guess I'm, I'm going to go backwards a little bit and like talk about a writer's room because that is a whole culture that I um, had the privilege of entering and learning about. And I honestly love it. Um, so uh, it's funny. I feel like a lot of people know about writer's rooms now, but it's like, but it's also like this like kind of mysterious space that everyone knows it exists. Everyone knows like names of people, but like what actually happens there? Feel like it was a, kind of a mystery to me, but it, what's really neat is it's like collaborative storytelling um, and problem solving. Like a big part, I feel like, of writing television is, you know, you want this, you want that, and you have to figure out how to make it all work, make sense, have good structure, have the emotions you want. And um, and what's beautiful about a writer's room is that you have a lot of people who uh, come from different places, come from different, like, have different skill sets when it comes to storytelling, have different perspectives, and you... Um, as a group in the writer's room, you kind of take uh, the story apart and put it back together again uh, in the form, in adaptation. Like it's, a, it's now, I've, now I've experienced in two shows that I work on. I work um, both on The Old Man and on Percy Jackson. And so one of them is, is you know, coming up with a story from scratch, which is a one type of process. And the other is adaptation, which is, um, it turns out, something I really love doing. But my particular role, as I understand it, is that I really, um, I love to think kind of big picture. And uh, I love to think about all five books at one time and kind of always keep that kind of this shiny object in front of me, like this larger story. Um, I love to think in terms of like finding pathways through themes um, to get to what, you know, motivation and action should be. And one of my favorite things is just to insert myself into the heads of the characters as I understand them and just trying to imagine, like, if I was them, mm-hmm. what would I do? How would I react? What would be important to me? Um, that, for me, is a really fun pathway to find the ways that I would contribute to the group discussion. Hmm. It's interesting you say that, too, because I feel like that's something I noticed coming back to um, especially like The Lightning Thief in the original series as something I really noticed that Rick does in his writing is really show you how each character is exploring a lot of the themes in different ways. Like one that comes to mind is like their, their relationships to their parents is like a huge one. And the relation like you, you see so many different shades of it, which is something that I found really, really exciting to dig into as a um, person analyze. As an analyzer? An analyst? <laughs> <laughs> As an analysisist? Um... <laughs> oh, I like that word. That's a great version of it. <laughs> no, I, I definitely felt that really strongly in the show. Like, that's a theme that mm-hmm. I, especially, I, I've been thinking so much, like, 24-7 since hearing it, about Echidna's uh, family story line and that whole speech, honestly. 
Which is, it was such a brilliant take on that character, that she is a mother, and that her actions toward her child are actually far less monstrous than what Athena is doing toward her child right now, and what does it mean for your understanding of what this family is that they're all a part of? Yeah, I mean, it's really fun to have these um, kind of dual texts of, of Rick's book and the larger mythology to play with, because you know, every bit of what she said is true to mythology. Like they are actually one giant family. And which then is like circles back into itself. That's just like Greek mythology. Until I read Rick's books, I never really thought about Greek mythology in this specific way, that Mm. it is the perfect way to look at family in all directions. Like I think that, you know, look, from the child's view up to look from the parent's view down to look at it kind of more structurally, like what are things that that repeat themselves and stuff like that. And it's just like, yes, I always knew that in Greek mythology, they're a family, but like the kind of alchemy of trying to adapt this story and use, you know, more sources from Greek mythology to kind of like fill out these these points of view that we don't have in the book was it was perfect like they're just like they were meant to be together this this way of investigating family from a structural and psychological level and and greek mythology but the beautiful thing is like yes of course like you know all of the characters speak in the books you know it's not (laughs) it's not just you're not only in percy's brain but you're still because it's a first person POV, like you're, you're very much, um, everything you hear, even I feel like my way of, of understanding the book is that everything you hear is being filtered through Percy's experience of it. Mm -hmm. So it's extremely subjective. And what we were kind of forced to do is pull back and create, you know, television requires, uh, more of kind of an omniscient narrator in a way you don't actually I mean some shows do have a narrator we don't but um but um the but in a way you have to do that because you have to be in every person's head to understand to be able to understand them enough to like write from multiple perspectives to give an actor like to have so that an actor has something to work with like like they need to understand their own motivation, their own, you know, where they came from, what they're doing. Like, you know, you, if you're only seeing the world through one person's eyes, you don't get that. Yeah. So it's like, like her speech, I feel like is like a mix of all these cool elements. It's a really, it's a great place to kind of talk about the process. That was, I, I mean, I was thinking a lot about that when I was watching the way that Annabeth and Grover were interacting in episode three specifically all of them in general but specifically episode three um their dynamic just because we had never really seen it outside of percy's perspective and knowing that they'd known each other for so long and that like that was her protector and then i started thinking about like well also grover is luke's protector and that's a whole thing like i I was like there are so many relationships that exist in this series that like i'm I'm finally going to get to explore because I don't have to live in this kid's head. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's so neat. Right. Because it's like, I mean, we obviously part of that story is like how learning this information affects Percy. 
but yeah, I mean, these people, they don't just, they don't just, you know, they have a deep relationship. Like, even if they, even if like they had never spoken in those years between when she came to camp and not, like they have this, like this experience in common that was so pivotal to each of their lives. And yeah, it's just so much fun to be able to think about that from outside of how it affects Percy. Mm-hmm. While also thinking about how it affects yeah, Percy. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's such a great thing because on some level, like all of the characters, not all of the characters, all of the kids, all of the protagonists are heroes. We can discuss whether, <laughs> who mm-hmm. is a hero and who isn't <laughs> in this. But but like, but they're all having a version of a hero story. Mm-hmm. And so it's really neat to be able to imagine and fill out what, you know, Annabeth's hero story is, what Grover's hero story is, like what, you know, and that's, that was a really fun thing with Grover, especially because, you know, I think especially in the first book, like kind of, I mean, other than wanting food, like a big part <laughs> of his character could be understood as cowardice. But also, I feel like could be understood as like someone who had trauma, like had this mm-hmm. awful weight. And and so like there's just a lot of ways to then when you're experiencing it as Grover's experience, like there are a lot of different ways you can take his behavior in the book and and understand where it came from. Mm-hmm. Well, on the topic of um, hero stories and what makes a hero versus maybe a monster, it in the books, I think Percy comes into this series with probably the same attitude toward monsters as his audience, which is, you know, you've been taught your whole life that monsters are monsters and heroes are heroes. And then we see that idea broken for him a couple times throughout the series. But here, Percy has already kind of had that idea broken for him because he's starting the story a step ahead of us thanks to Sally which is a shift that I'm really curious to see more from because that's, that means that you can take that arc kind of a hundred different directions for him and also means that every monster or hero or god he meets now comes with a different moral question, which is what makes someone a monster? Like at what point is Percy now going to draw his sword on you? Right. So I'm just curious, what what is going through your mind specifically changing Percy's relationship to monstrousness from the beginning and teaching him the myths in that way. Honestly, I feel like a big part of uh, how we got there is not exactly from the, uh, I mean, I'm going to start laughing at myself because anyone like both of you now uh, who've watched Black Sails knows that, that uh, <laughs> what is a monster, monster, a monster versus a man is definitely a, you know, Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I feel like I feel like it's not just a black sales question. It is actually uh, it is a an interesting way to look at the question of good and bad, right? So there's like stories that you know um, I won't name names, but there's stories about children where I feel like it's a lot more about like uh, this is what good these are the good people and these are the bad people and and like and there's you know you have to fight each other which can be a very interesting story but it doesn't those stories don't touch me the same way as stories where there is the question of what is good and what is bad which is not the same as like more complete moral relativism but it's it's something I think every single human struggles with every time right 
Like mm. we struggle it with in small ways. Like you are feeling under the weather and you have plans with a friend and you're debating whether to cancel. Right. Like just to bring it down to something super mundane. <laughs> right. These are like we are we live. We have a lot of drives and a lot of things we do. But like ultimately we live in a place of like a constant uh, questioning of ourselves like are we are we doing right are we not doing right are we being monstrous are we being heroic are we like and so part of it's that um, I think from a process perspective a lot of this sources back to Sally um, mm-hmm. as a character because we again because of this point of view thing we had the we had the opportunity the challenge and opportunity of figuring out uh, why she made the choices she made, right? Mm. Like, because in the books, you just experience those as a child experiences. Like, this is what my parent did. This is what my parent didn't do. This is what they said. And, you know, children live in a state uh, which sometimes dissipates when they become adults and sometimes doesn't ever (laughs) of, like, not (laughs) understanding why their parents did what they did. Um, and but we as writers had to understand why Sally did what she did, and so that from that arose this idea that like, you know, it's just you know honestly it's just like if you put yourself in Sally's shoes, like right, like you're you're a seer, which again that was not that was something that became part of the story later in the books, but we can draw from all of the books or all of the five books is mm-hmm. how we've been approaching it, mm-hmm. um, but. You know, that was like this great thing. It's like, oh, this is a great thing that we can pull from the story overall. But for Sally, obviously, it didn't become true only in what I guess Percy started to realize it in book three. Right. But for Sally, it was true her whole life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so like that had to be an integral part of like why she made the choices she did. And but even if you took out the seer part, there's just the challenge of like, you're a human parent, the demigod child, what are you going to do? Right? Yeah. So like, I'm sure some of them d- didn't, but we also like kind of came with this idea that like, no matter how you judge Poseidon, there's a sense that like he and Sally loved each other and mm-hmm. and that he cared at least about her. Like, mm-hmm. right? like even if you could argue that he didn't care about Percy, like at least he cared about her. So like then also came in this idea that he, you know, he probably filled her in a little bit on what all this means. And so then with those kind of hypothetical data points, there's, you know, what would she do? She can't tell him what he is. She didn't want to send him to camp or we have the reality in the books that she didn't send him to camp. So we had to, you know, infer from mm-hmm. that that she didn't want to. Right. Maybe she knew about him being a child of the big three and the and, you know, and the added danger of that. And maybe she didn't, but maybe she did. Mm-hmm. But like if that if that's part of it, then like it made so much sense for us to have her be instructing him. So, um, OK, now I'm going to speak as me because I don't even know. I don't, honestly, it was a long time ago that we were, like, breaking all this stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it felt interesting to me, like, in a world, whether she knew or not, but in a world where Percy was not just in danger from monsters, right? Like, so most, your average demigod, their biggest problem is monsters are chasing me, get to camp, camp is safe. Mm -hmm. But that was not the reality for Percy. 
right? Like as a child of Poseidon, you know, as we know, like it is obviously introduced in the first book, but continues to be an issue is like, he's not really safe in the mythological world. Like he's not safe once he gets to camp either. Mm hmm. So it's just like so that that you so so you see what I'm saying like that already kind of brings up this question of like who's safe who's not safe who's good who's good for him who's not good for him when when the gods aren't at, aren't aren't a refuge from mm-hmm. the monsters where camp isn't a refuge so like okay sorry I I do feel like I'm going like way around this question <laughs> but, but like but but I just feel like it's all it's all intertwined like that there's this beautiful ambiguity in his thing where it's just like it's not just I'm in danger from the bad guys monsters yeah. and I go to the good guys mm-hmm. gods and demigods and then I'm safe like it's much more complex for that for him than that and so, like, this just felt like, you know, it feels like it's it's almost like it's so in the text, even though that actual juxtaposition isn't worded in the text in that way. But it's it's so, in my understanding of the story, it's so essential to this whole story, right? I mean, and then, you know, then we take the relationship of Percy and Luke, like, it's just... Yeah. Who's who's the hero and who's the monster? It's not that one of them is or they're interchangeable. It's that they both are both in some ways. Mm. It's interesting you bring that up also because I was thinking about coming from the historical perspective, all this stuff. I have a theory that the reason why the Iliad exists as such like a foundational text and why so many people use it as a touchstone and like it has lasted so long because it had competition. There were plenty of other epics we've now lost about the Trojan War um, surrounding it and even there was a brief period of time actually around like I think the enlightenment period where there were a couple people that published like oh this is what really happened at the Trojan War which turned out to be a forgery that was actually uh, a lot of people were like oh no this is the on the ground real Iliad account let's let's get rid of that other stuff <laughs> which is one wow. of my favorite fun facts that's amazing but... <laughs> I did not know that that's amazing um but there's something about the power of the storytelling in the Iliad that I think has made it last so long and I think for me, what I've always thought the reason was, was because there are no good guys and bad guys. Like it is such a fundamentally, it's a story that is so fundamentally about individual struggles and individual struggles with uh, so many different things that all kind of come out in this one grand narrative of a war that I, I think I even mentioned this in an episode that I sort of interpret almost as like a war between mor- morta- like mortality and immortality, like the mortals and the gods. So to me, I, it makes total sense that you find this all, like, all so linked together as well in that way, because I feel like that's how I sort of think about a lot of this stuff, too. I mean, it's interesting the way you just put that, because I think it's, I, I, this is, I mean, now I'm just getting into, like, my theories about story and humans, is I think that some part of us craves, right, the, like, the cleanliness of good guys and bad guys, mm-hmm. but I also believe that like that kind of touches the surface of like what we want. It's like the cotton candy, right? Like it's like, oh, that tastes good right now, but like, but it's gone. But, but what the stories that endure are the ones that go deeper into mm. the things that we essentially need. 
like, and I mean, I, yeah, I'm now really getting into my how I see story, but, <laughs> but it's just like, there are things that are like, oh, that's fun. And that feels really satisfying in the moment. And then there are things that kind of touch your soul. Mm-hmm. And, and I do, I am a person who believes like that there are certain things, certain like flavors. I'm trying to think of a good, I feel like if this is so deep in my belief system, I should have a better analogy, but, <laughs> but, um, but like there's, there's certain things that, that touch us really deeply and that do have a little bit of a universality to them because they touch, they're like maybe beyond culture to like just emotional states of being that are like, that are essential, like hunger like this. Mm-hmm. So, so that they, so that they really are deep down, like primordial things that we urges that we have and things that we need and I think that it's the complex story like kind of like I said earlier like the complex stories are the ones that really satisfy us and endure because they they speak to what we are actually humans grapple with every single day mm-hmm. yeah there's nothing satisfying or common in an experience of like people being purely evil or purely good. I don't know any, I mean, I maybe, maybe I just haven't met the right people. (laughs) (laughs) That sort of puts to words. I think some of the feelings I had, especially watching uh, what immediately comes to mind is the Medusa encounter in the show, just because I think that was the first real moment of, you know, taking this, which is, I, I think in the book, she is painted more sympathetically than other um, of the monsters they encounter. I agree. But at yeah. the end of the day, she's still, you know, a monster in the book. And she's still, you know, they have to defeat her. And she still behaves exactly the way you'd expect a monster to. And so I found that such an interesting thing that was, got kicked off with this the changes that were made to the Medusa encounter. Especially also, well, I don't know if Phoebe wants to, she noticed something also that was, I thought was really interesting. <laughs> I, I was particularly fascinated by the fact that we never saw Medusa's body because it wasn't visible. And so we didn't know whether she turned to dust or not. Because I, there are messy lines here between like monstrousness on like a metaphorical level and all that. But there is a point at which a member of this family becomes a capital M monster by technicality and it's like if you die you turn to dust you go to tartarus plus in the show you now have um they can sense your weaknesses monsters sense your weaknesses they go after them but not your fear because that's bees right that's not (laughs) (laughs) that line was so funny somebody should tell a kid not that (laughs) (laughs) but that includes people like like in the book, at least, Procrustes, because he's just another son of Poseidon. He's just, he shouldn't crumble to dust, but he does in the book. Um, and so I'm not going to ask you what you think happens to Medusa's body, but I am going to ask you, <laughs> uh, how does that, that that physical line where your body turns to dust and you're sent to Tartarus exist within this conversation around what makes a monster and that theme in this show, in your interpretation? Mm, that's interesting. I'm going to put off that question until season two, which is, um, you know, hoping, hopefully we get one of those. <laughs> but yes, I think that we will. Well, I know that, you know, the second book has such this beautiful framing de- device of of a Cyclops who is a sibling and a Cyclops who's also a sibling, but a monster. Mm-hmm. But the first one's also defined as a monster. So like this, I think, is, you know, I feel like we... It's almost like I can't really talk about it yet in 
mm-hmm. in the context of season one because it's going to be something that I feel like not only the show, but I will have better answers <laughs> after. It's No, it's interesting because it's like I've thought about it a lot, but one of the beautiful things about this process, this this collaborative storytelling, is like in the process of everyone talking about things and in the process of figuring out how to depict them. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. even places where I thought I really had a like, I was like, this is how I see this, but it's just like, it's just this, it's an evolving thing because we read books and we, we fill in blanks all the time, right? Like we don't even notice we're doing it. Like we visualize, some people I've understood visualize more pictorially, some visualize more not pictorially, more experientially, but we're, we're filling in blanks constantly. When you turn a book into a TV show or a movie, you have to fill in all those blanks. Like the writer's room, the writer, the directors, all everyone yeah. involved in the production, basically their job is to fill in those blanks because you have to actually show it. And so that process ends up being this really, like this cir- circular thing where it's like you bring in your ideas and your opinions and you deal with the challenges on the ground and in the writing and you interact with other people who have their opinions and assumptions and then you come out often with like something much better than what any one person could have ever thought of um so that was like a really elaborate way for me to avoid a question but <laughs> it's fine we'll, we'll come back to it we'll come back to it we'll stick a pin in that way yep. <laughs> i do find it interesting that you bring that up though because something i have noticed about this show that i think actually the medusa having the invisibility cap on uh, is an example of is um, that you've still I find I see I've noticed the show has still found ways to maintain some of the ambiguity, especially in the more mythological aspects, which is something I find really interesting. Um, just because that's such a huge piece of the mythology is the fact that there is no one story, there's no one version of it, there's no correct thing. You kind of just pick your faves and go with it. <laughs> pick your uh, faves and go with it. My go-to move. <laughs> Um, And I definitely want to dig into that a lot more, I think, later in the conversation, uh, because it makes me very interested to know why we choose. Because I think it's so personal to everybody, which aspects of which myths they connect with, they want to bring into a story. Um, But one thing I found really interesting is the fact that we're presented with prophecy and fate sort of being two separate ideas. And also, I, if I recall correctly, the way they are explained is almost opposite to each other. Um, because I believe Annabeth explains prophecies are things you don't try to figure out. They don't necessarily mean what you... Like, the more you try to find meaning in them, the worse it's going to be for you. Versus fate, when she talks about fate and Percy's like, oh, so that must be ambiguous, like prophecy stuff, essentially. So that's at least how I interpreted the scene. She's like, nope, it means someone's going to die. <laughs> I'm going to address this primarily as a Daphne answer, not not a show answer necessarily, but in that I'm going to I'm going to say I'm not sure those are different. Mm. I disagree with you that those that those are different. Because what is fate? Right? Like if we take the great prophecy which is fate. It's all fate. Like, ultimately, isn't a prophecy just an expression of fate? It's just a, a an oracle is a mouthpiece of fate, right? So both a prophecy and fate, they are unknowable. 
Like in that, we don't know how we're going to get there. You know what's, you know, there is something that's going to happen. Every single bit of this prophecy and of the great prophecy come true. They just don't necessarily come true in the way you think they're going to come true. And it's the same with fate. Like, let's take the story of Perseus. His grandfather was told that his grandson would kill him, right? He didn't know when. He didn't know how. He didn't know, like, so if he talked to Annabeth and said, how can I prevent this? Annabeth would say, well, I don't know. You've got to, you're just at step one. You need to, like, go down this path before we'll understand what it really means. Like, yeah, sure, death. But that's like saying, you know, that's like saying a lot of things, like like saying a friend will betray tr- Percy. Like the the question mark is which friend, how will the betrayal, all these things. But the fact that a friend will betray, that's fate. And I think that what's so fun about fate and prophecy is, again, I'm just going to go back to humans. It's just like I had a conversation with a friend of mine not so long ago where she was like, I hate fate as a concept. Because I think a lot of people talk about fate in ter- like in these like extremes, right? It's like either I have choices or things are chosen for me and there's nothing in between. But that's not true, right? Like there are things we are all fated. We are all fated to die, let's say, not to get morbid, but it's true, right? That is every single human being's fate. We all know we're going to die. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know what it's going to look like, but that doesn't mean we don't have choice. Like, yes, we do not have the choice not to die. I know some people would like to pretend we do, but we don't have the choice not to die. But we have a million choices, more than a million. We have so many choices between this moment when the three of us are talking to each other and when we'll die. And all we have so many choices, what we're going to do with this time, how we're going to be, who we're going to be who we're going to help, who we're going to hurt, where we're going to live, all of these choices, right? And so you don't know how those choices are going to relate to this this future that is waiting for you of death. So we can't know how we get to this thing. And we can't even know exactly the nature of the thing that's waiting for us, but it's waiting for us, no matter Mm -hmm. what. And I think it's a really interesting thing when you start looking at how each character in the books... And, you know, I'm hoping to extrapolate that into the show. It's like each character has a very different relationship to the idea of fate, the idea that that they can't change things. Right. Like this idea that you I mean, just the the agreement between the big three. Right. Isn't that just them trying to avoid fate? Mm -hmm. The, the, The great prophecy predates this story. Therefore, by trying by by not like trying to not have children, (laughs) they were trying to avoid a fate, which, you know, even like the funny thing about that is like it's not even says whether this this hero in the great prophecy is good or bad. Right. So it's like there's like we're just like we're just going to take no chances and (laughs) and like not have children, even if the children are the ones are going to save us. Right. Because they're just trying to avoid fate. So I feel like, you know, that's a really fun lens for the overall story is like how people relate to fate. And I think that also has to do with how they relate to to the hierarchy in the story, whether or not, you know, in general, they like the idea that somebody else has gets to make decisions for them and have power over them. 
something I was just thinking about as you were talking to is the fact that I don't think the happy stories have prophecies in Greek mythology. I was just thinking about it. And like all of the tragedies are the ones with prophecies. The prophecy almost creates the tragedy, which I think is interesting also in light of Percy Jackson, considering, you know, these books aren't tragedies. <laughs> well, I guess it depends who you are. It depends. Exactly. Yeah. They're kind of a tragedy for me, a Luke fan. <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, and I think that gets down to it is like, right, whether something is a tragedy or not is is a matter of perspective. Um whether or not, I mean, you're right, it's true. Like the ones that we experience as not tragedies, it makes less sense to have a prophecy, to be perfectly honest, because because then you don't, you're not, it's not a story of like grappling with something you can't control and losing. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also a person who like doesn't really divide the world into tragedy and not tragedy. I think that life is a mix of both. So mm-hmm. ultimately, they're all a little bit of everything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just think the the prophecy is such a, um, or any prophecy or any idea of fate is such a neat way to to look at the struggle it is that is essential to what it is to be human. Not to like keep saying that is the ultimate answer to every question, but it is kind of, right? When it comes to things like fate, I also think of things like fatal flaw as sort of part of the topic because they are inevitable in some way. Absolutely. I'm curious how much are fatal flaws playing in your mind as as part of the conversation in the writer's room? And then part of that was because the, my second question is that we know Percy and Abbott's book canon fatal flaw. And I'm worried. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you thought about Grover's. Oh, yeah, I actually I mean, I have. I don't know if it's really been a topic. I mean, to answer your question, yes, fatal flaws are absolutely discussed in the writer's room. Um because uh, fatal flaws, I mean, deep down, what is a fatal flaw if not personality, right? I mean, it's just like, which is absolutely the job of writers to, <laughs> to contemplate uh-huh. the personality of their characters. Um, so yes, fatal flaws are important. Um, fatal flaws are important, you know, in the books. Like they're just, they are a crucial part of how the story plays out. So they are important, therefore, to what, to the adaptation of the books. Um it's interesting. Okay. Oh God, I'm like, I'm gonna get theoretical on you again. Sorry. I'm just like it's like the philosophy of fatal flaws. You're saying this like we don't want you to. <laughs> I mean, the way I see fatal flaws, um, which again, like not to I I promise I'm not just trying to be a generalist. It's just like you know, I see all story and characters as, you know, representations of the struggles humans go through. So all fatal flaws are a person's strength and their weakness, right? Like fatal flaw is an interesting way to think about them, right? Which I think the way you said it is a perfect way to look at it. It's something that is fated to them. It is it is something that they have to like fate. And like I said earlier about death and things like that, like it's something you can't change. You have to, you can only like incorporate that into the way that you navigate the world. How's that for a way of saying it? That that makes sense to me. Yeah. I don't. I've never actually expressed it that way before, but that feels right to me. But the interesting thing about a fatal flaw is, like in Percy Jackson, my sense of the fatal flaws is that they are always the person's strength and their weakness. It is the thing that mm-hmm. gets them in trouble. It is also the source of their strength, and that's what makes it so interesting because the the process of growing up and learning and changing for each of them 
is to learn how to grapple with their fatal flaw. So like one of my favorite examples is like, I feel like, I feel like, you know, in, in book five, like everything Hestia says to Percy Hmm. is like, she's describing him to himself. Hmm. And she's just saying like, don't fight who you are. I mean, she never says that, I know. So but that's my interpretation of what she's saying is she's giving these examples of of stepping aside and not being the hero, the mm-hmm. hero, in capitals, in yeah. all caps even. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she's telling him a version of what is his fatal flaw and has been, I feel like, only defined to him as a negative up until that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And... That, you know, that essentially he's going to choose, I mean, this is, my, again, my interpretation of his fatal flaw, but he's going to choose love over glory. So that's why I love the concept as presented in these books of fatal flaws, because every single one of them had a, like all human choice, like the differences between being a hero and a tragic hero, is that it's all about the choices you make, not about your fate necessarily, not about what traits you have that you can't change. It's what you do with it. And mm-hmm. not to start sounding like a superhero movie, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, uh, so Grover's. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I know this sounds really obvious, but I think he's his empathy. And, um, <laughs> Everyone should watch The Old Man, not just because I helped write it, but because I think it's a great show. But there is a moment where one of the characters talks about empathy as a weapon. And empathy is something that you can fall into, right? You can can lose years of your life to guilt because of empathy. Mm. Not just talking about Grover, talking Mm -hmm. about anyone, but like Mm -hmm. in Grover in particular, right? But also you could sit across from a god even and use your ability of empathy to find out information that either of you necessarily realize you're even getting until you get it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I would say his fatal flaw is empathy. What do both of you think his fatal flaw is? <laughs> well, I, I hadn't actually thought of it as both your greatest strength and your greatest weakness. I've been thinking of it strictly as weakness. Um, that is a good point. And as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, obviously, empathy. <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> um, but I actually hadn't given it that much thought, really. <laughs> and when I realized that yeah. while I was, I'm, it's because you all have brought so much out of Grover in this show that mm-hmm. I am thinking about him more than I ever have. <laughs> awesome. Best compliment yeah. ever. <laughs> <laughs> and so watching that scene with Aries, like I was, I was just so taken by how powerful he is yeah right exactly but like but that's all in the book too right like there's just mm-hmm. like everything everything the powers he starts to express and receive later on they're all based in empathy as well mm-hmm. so so like this concept again it's just i i feel like what we were doing was we were bringing later grover mm-hmm. forward a little bit because again we're experiencing it from grover's perspective and, you know, and all of the things that he does are about, you know, empathy turned into something more supernatural because it can go both ways, right? Like the empathy mm-hmm. bond, like, like, like um, 
the what is uh, shoot what is it called the thing that he does in the end of the oh the uh panic yeah exactly so like and and even the way he uses the pipes like all of those things are about if you took the idea of like the way we like the way we have empathy and turn it into something more magical where it can go in both directions um so yeah i just feel like what we what we did was like this is like this is kind of the for a mythological creature i'm going to say it's naturalistic but like for a mythological creature with you know more powers than we have in terms of what you would define as empathy this is the 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 version that he is expressing before he becomes more powerful and then later empowered by pan to be even more powerful Hmm. that's such such yeah i've never thought about it that way before so i'm just turning this over in my head like ooh, because whenever in the past i've tried to find someone's fatal flaw i look to the parts the times they've almost died and why <laughs> oh or at least almost died because they did something that they maybe shouldn't have yeah but don't you feel like i mean i this is again now i'm gonna get theoretical about story but like when you think about a tragic hero like phoebe has heard me talk about this a lot in the context of black sales um a tragic hero is a hero like hero mm-hmm. tried so hard like they sh- you know they did everything they could do to do something heroic, but they failed in -hmm. some way. That was their downfall. And so like, isn't that the same idea? Like, like that is essentially what you just said, like almost dying or falling, you know, in a more emotional or, or, you know, good and evil way from trying to do something. But the only time when we say they shouldn't have is because they failed. Had they Mm -hmm. succeeded, then we would no longer say they shouldn't have done it then we would say, wow, they're amazing. Look at them. They did a great thing. And so that's the only difference between, in my eyes, that's the only difference yeah. between those two things is if they're trying to do good, which is, you know, different than trying to do evil. But if you're trying to do good and fail, like you just, you end just short of the mark, then it's, then it feels like a fatal flaw in the negative way. But if they tried the exact same thing and succeeded, mm. then it's, same traits, same same behavior, same choices, but like slightly different, either in circumstance or the nature of the choice that would make you think of it as something that's not failure. Yeah, that, that makes me think of this. I, I can't remember if it's a famous quote or not, but I remember reading it somewhere that like, at least I think it was in the context of Shakespeare, like all of the tragedies are just, they would have, we wouldn't have been tragedies if you just swapped the main character from a different main character. Um, I forget exactly the wording and who said it, but I remember this as a Tumblr post. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's on Tumblr. <laughs> hey, then it's a good Tumblr post. <laughs> but yeah, it's just that. I mean, it all goes back again to this idea that like it's just it's it's the it's the the not you know strict dichotomy. It's the 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 actual complexity that that speaks to human experience. Wow, yeah. I am just a broken record on that front <laughs> in this podcast episode. But it's it's what makes it fun, right? It yeah. makes it fun when you're like when you're like you see people striving to be good and not managing or striving to be good and yes managing, but like knowing yeah. that they could have failed. If you felt the whole time like like they were going to succeed no matter what, like what's the fun in that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because I was thinking about this while watching Black Sails. <laughs> of course. <laughs> because I was, I, I, it felt so human to me in that way. And I was trying to figure out why. And I realized it's just because it, nothing's going right the way you want it to go. 
And I think it's just that infuriating thing of like, you've got this huge grand plan, but none of you don't have control over any of the moving pieces, no matter how hard you try. And you have to deal with that. <laughs> you could be speaking about fate right now. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the next thing we really wanted to talk about was episode five. Cool. The encounter with Hephaestus in particular. You know, as someone who's also engaged a lot with mythology and like used them and used myths also in some of my own writing, like basically it always interests me to see what other people take out of mythology in this way. And I see it most reflected often when they're using it to tell their own stories because it's just by nature, that's how it has always been. You sort of people just taking their own interpretations. So I would love to talk about the decision to change which story we are telling um, from the book to the show with Hephaestus. So the original story in the book is the story, the, the myth that it's sort of based on that the encounter is based on is the story of Hephaestus trapping Ares and Aphrodite together to kind of humiliate them, basically. Um, and in the show, it's a different Hephaestus story, which also features trapping, about uh, when he trapped Hera in a chair. But it wasn't to humiliate a god. It wasn't to humiliate Ares and Aphrodite. It was to essentially, the way I kind of interpret it is establish his, like, importance to the gods, like, to show them, like, he is powerful. Oh, that's interesting. That That's sort of, I mean, that's, that is sort of how I interpret the myth. No, I love that interpretation. That's interesting. I, I suppose a question that I don't know if you can answer is what, what, what was the first impetus of, like, I wonder if we should change this? Ooh, that is a big question, too. I'm going to take it from a few different angles. One is just the practical considerations of the um, the the actual way it is in the book with the mm. with the ride and the spiders and all of that was just it's just going to be very very hard to produce. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> um, it just yeah it would just be a lot of uh, a lot of if I understand the the challenges exactly is like a lot of. Uh, virtual effects things that would be basically over you know just like all over like all those little spiders were mm. just going to be a lot of work a lot of money to produce so then that kind of opened things up but then the larger question and um this gets to why uh, when phoebe asked me when which episode i would like to be interviewed after it is this episode because it's my favorite um i think it's my favorite too yeah uh, okay <laughs> Uh, that makes me happy. So it's it's all. I feel like in the context of of the episode, it's almost impossible to talk about Hephaestus without talking about Ares too. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you'll excuse me, I'm gonna like not. I'm I'm gonna answer your question hopefully, but like in a little bit of a roundabout way. Um, if you're gonna tell a family story, right? If you're gonna if you're going to investigate all of these different relationships, one of those relationships is siblings, right? So this is actually, to be perfectly honest, like if we're being super honest about it, it is a Hephaestus, Ares, Athena story in episode five. Mm. And what do those three have in common? They are children of Zeus. I mean, I know there's other children of Zeus, but like, but they are children of Zeus. And when you think, like when you take out the God part, of who they are like and you just think of them as siblings right they are siblings who were born in a certain order 
their siblings who have received different different levels of uh, affirmation and and non-affirmation from their parents and that creates sibling dynamics um, mm-hmm. and so this is this is part of it like we you know the show and your podcast have investigated the Athena and um, Annabeth dynamic and this idea of like trying to be enough be be good in the eyes of one's parent but Athena also has a parent mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she shares that parent with Hephaestus and with Ares and so then you start like I just that's part of why I love this episode so much is like in the context of of Annabeth and Percy kind of making text the stuff that we talked about earlier about Sally and about the nature of family and this family in particular to see how the effects of the family dynamic have influenced the siblings, the children who are themselves gods as well. Like they're also children of parents. So yes, like Hephaestus and Ares rivals for Aphrodite's love and all of this, but like ultimately they're brothers who had very different experiences in the world of that family. Oh, right. This is another thing that I, I like, I really, I loved thinking about was um, the gods. I mean, I'm, I, I don't really know the history, but my assumption is for historical purposes of like when they showed up and, you know, mm-hmm. cultures combining. And so you end up in a situation where at some point along the way, we started to all talk about like the gods have overlapped, like they all have overlapping domains. Mm-hmm. So it's like they're, you know, like, yes, Hephaestus is a craftsperson, but like Athena's also a craftsperson and Ares is war, but Athena's also war. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, that is really interesting, too, when you think about them just as children, right? It's just like when you have, if you have a family with multiple children, and it's like, it's like really easy for everyone if each child kind of has their skill set and the things that they're good at and the things their parents praise them for. But often when two kids are kind of like living within the same realm Mm -hmm. in their development, like then it becomes competition. Not always, but it can. But especially with a family like this, that's so hierarchical. I it's so funny because I literally made a triple. I have two younger brothers, and I made a triple Venn diagram once of the three of us because I thought that would be funny. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It, it's just so interesting to me. Like Aries is like, "Yay, I love my family," but at the same time, he's like, "Why does everyone think my sister's better than me?" So this does not, this actually aligns very well with what you said about Hephaestus. That just doesn't happen to be the side of it. That's why I liked it so much. Mm. Like, it totally aligns with this, right? It's just like, if all of the children, like Annabeth is doing with her mother, if all of the children gods are basically needing to do the same thing, is prove their worth and are in competition to do so, which I mean, is kind of like if Zeus sent out all of his children to look for the bolt, he's basically you're like, who's the who's going to be the the good kid who finds it for me? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know what kind of parent he is that it didn't occur to him that any of his kids were involved, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so the the story of the throne is Hephaestus saying, "These are my powers. This is my worth." I see it also as this is like a very heartbreaking way to see it. It's just like 
a child literally grabbing their parent and not letting them go until they Mm -hmm. recognize them. Like the throne is a device of a thing that a lot of children have an urge to do, which is just assert themselves to a parent that doesn't recognize them until the parent recognizes them. So that's not why the change. I mean, that's why is such an interesting question when, so like, those are a lot, that's like a giant bag of inspirations. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So like, I just said a lot of like, thematic, mythological, psychological gobbledygook, right? So that's the kind of stuff one brings into a writer's room is you bring your bag of you bring your bag of goodies into a writer's room and everyone else brings their bag of goodies into a writer's room. But the job at hand is to figure out how to construct a story. So, you know, so each person, some of their goodies end up in the story. And if they like fit together like puzzle pieces and then and fit the structure and fit with the what you're trying to like do in that episode, do in the season, do emotionally for the characters, for the place you want them to develop, then that's what ends up in the episode. So it's a mixture between uh, the fact that the spider version was going was, you know, kind of unproducible in the parameters that we had and also that um, the throne ended up offering all of these new ways to tell the story but again still feeling like it's in the spirit of of the old story because like ultimately Hephaestus's story is very sad and tragic like he he like he just he he can't catch a break right yeah He's had a rough time of it. And it's interesting because that makes him, in a lot of ways, um, of the gods. I mean, I know Dionysus is literally the most like a demigod of the gods, but um, mm. but of the gods kind of situationally, he's the one who's kind of closest in this very, very strong hierarchy. He's the one who's in a lot of ways closest to them because the gods don't treat him like they do the other gods. You feel that so strongly with bringing him in, like actually physically bringing him into the room, especially in the same episode as Ares, because you can feel just, I mean, you can, we clearly felt it because we spent a lot of that episode just trying to piece together what was up with this guy. (laughs) You can feel how (laughs) much he just doesn't quite fit into like what you've learned of this family so far. And then when he comes out, it's it's just so, so clear. Like Emily said that he was just a, a kid that was tossed out of his family who lost his childhood and is trying to find his place in it but doesn't it doesn't doesn't have one really right i mean i think i think i guess the question i'm going to pose to like think about for the future is like do all of the gods i mean he's the most extreme version the most obvious version the most quantifiable version but like do any of the gods really fit Mm -hmm. like do are they getting what they want are they satisfied let's say yeah It's a question. I'll say, I'll say, I'll say before the episode with Lin-Manuel Miranda, I did not intend that to be a Hamilton <laughs> reference. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, you know, this is how families work, right? Like there's yeah. every parent was a child. I mean, okay, I guess in the mythological world, not every parent was a child because <laughs> some of them were created in different ways. But if we're, if we're, if we are looking at the Olympians as the human avatars that I think they are. I don't just mean in the books. I mean, in general, <laughs> mm-hmm. as archetypes. Um, they. I think that every, every, like I just said, every parent is a child. Every person who is at the top of a hierarchy was probably lower down in a hierarchy at some point. 
And so uh, it's not just, I guess what I'm trying to say, it's not just the monsters that we want to investigate what their interiority is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is also the gods because they, it is, they're all part of the family. And I would just like to credit the amazing, wonderful, beautiful, and very weird brains of John Steinberg and Zoe Neary because the two of them together are what happened <laughs> in the tunnel with the music and the visuals. And I mean, I am so blessed to honestly work with everyone who has been involved with this. Um, from Rick and Becky, through the writer's room, through the production people, through being on set, which I got to do a a lot, which was so much fun, and meet people and talk to them about what they do, because I'm still so new to all this and learning. But um, but the fact that I get to be the person who enjoys the process of watching John's brain and Zoe's brain (laughs) so good. But yes, this was the pinnacle for me. Like this moment is just where the two of them brought their creativity and weirdness together in the best way. And it's just, it's so wonderful. And I wish, one of the saddest things for me was that I did, I was not on set when they were filming that. Uh, I got to see pictures of it, but um, I was not on set for that. So I wish I had been because I loved watching the process of the development of that. Um, Zoe, I mean, she posted them as stories. She posted her original sketches that um, mm. probably by the time this comes out, they won't be in her Instagram story anymore. But but um, she, yeah, her sketches that became the the kind of inspiration for for the projection on the wall is so funny and wonderful. The idea of Hephaestus designing that entire projection is hilarious, actually. <laughs> I mean, right, but it's like, isn't that awesome? Like, you have Aries on the one side. Like, again, I think, you know, I think the telling side of what he's saying is how competitive is he is with his sister. So mm-hmm. I, my interpretation of Aries is that he's like, he's protesting a little bit too much in the direction of like, I fit. Mm-hmm. But then to have his brother who's just like, I will build a monument to how much I don't fit and my life was really kind of a mess mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a that's a certain kind of person who would do that <laughs> and have some fun with it <laughs> and have some fun with it oh god yeah it's it's yeah i feel like i feel like i mean this is this is actually a beautiful i think i feel like this is a beautiful example of uh both how how collective storytelling brings out things that us, any one of us would never have been able to come up with, right? Like, it's mm. just like, it's such a blend of so many minds that came, that managed to make this, like, very weird and wonderful thing. And I feel like I'm now starting to understand something that I heard in my interviews, in my podcast, that now I'm starting to understand is that sometimes you're part of creating something and you don't even necessarily fully understand what parts of you ended up in the contributions to mm-hmm. the thing as it ended. And then you have this thing that you can look at later on as a creator. Like, I mean, you know, I I guess your audience doesn't necessarily know. Like, I fully love how, like the process of and listening to other people interpret stories of all sorts, having nothing to, no, stories that have nothing to do with me. But 
But even as someone who is part of making the story, you can learn stuff about <laughs> what the final project, product, even the stuff that was your contributions to it well afterwards, just by looking at it again, going, wow, that that just has that has angles that I hadn't even thought of myself. And so you start to kind of learn about yourself a little bit mm -hmm. in the process as well. So mm -hmm. it's it's um, it's art is wild, isn't it? It's just so true. Just, it just, <laughs> you just you just you can't pin it down even when you were one of the people making it. And that's the beauty because you can just continue to learn from it. Yeah, it becomes a million different things after a million different people watch it. Right. I mean, that's so cool. Like, I, you know, if I had all the time in the world, I would love to listen to what everyone thinks, because I'm sure people are seeing stuff that we didn't even think of. And that's amazing. It's it's so cool. I'm now wondering uh, if you had a particular memory from being on set or seeing the finished product where it like something came to life for you in a way that just made you so like, I don't know, you know, those light bulb moments I feel like when you create something and you see it come to life in front of you in a way that you never expected. Goodness. I mean, honestly, I, I this is not me avoiding that question. I, I It's hard for me to pinpoint one because I feel like, mm. partly because I'm so new to this, this is so magical for me. I feel like I had so many of them. I mean, honestly, being on set and watching scenes happen in front of my eyes that I had anything to do with conceiving of is already pretty magical. I It's all still very abstract to me and getting less so like this show really kind of uh, because, you know, honestly, the fandom is so amazing. And so like, it's so much, it's so wonderful to see everyone's reactions. But, but I'm still in a place where like, I get on set and then I realize like this wasn't just an exercise of me and my friends sitting around and talking story <laughs> with each other. <laughs> so like, that's not really, I think, what you were looking for. But like I'm I'm so new to this that I got on like first time I came on set. I mean, any set is so many people. I mean, it's just like it's like a it's it's like a whole village of talented people being talented with each other. It's so amazing. And so, but I experienced that the first time on The Old Man because that was the first show I worked on. But to come to this show because the scale was so massive and to get to know everyone and just that. I mean, it's just honestly like one of my favorite experiences was a day where they were filming on location and I didn't go and I don't remember why. Maybe because I had writer's room for for either Percy or The Old Man. I don't remember, but I think I had to be like the at the offices that were by the volume stage like where kind of the mm -hmm. home base was and so I was just wandering around because I loved wandering around I loved looking at all the sets that were in progress and just everything just <laughs> I very I really really love my job <laughs> <laughs> but but it was a day where like there wasn't that kind of activity and there wasn't mm -hmm. like there wasn't like all the people I usually work with and stuff and I was just wandering around and uh, I went into the volume stage and they were building the main house. Like they were, mm. they were, the carpenters were building the main house. And I was like, I'm, I'm still like, 
I'm getting better about this, but like I, I'm usually very nervous on set. Oh, not nervous, but I just like don't want to get in mm. people's way. Mm. Like I'm really, really mm. conscious to. And so I was like kind of like doing this thing where I was like kind of standing on the side and like peeking from far away to see what they were doing. And the carpenters invited me up onto the stage to see what they were doing. And it was so much fun to talk to them, like because they were asking me about the scenes that were going to be there. And I was asking them about the building process. Mm. And it's it's that. It's just like mm. we sat around. Well, it was during the pandemic, so mostly on Zoom. We sat around and talked about the story. And everyone worked hard to write the episodes and, you know, and rewrite the episodes and all this stuff. But then ultimately, it's just kind of magical to see it all become. Mm. But maybe I'll come up for another time that I'm talking to, I'll come up with a specific, but uh, also uh, having, I mean, a very specific one is having Jessica Parker Kennedy, one of my favorite mm. actors in the world, play Medusa, one of my favorite characters in the world, which my love for Medusa predates me even being aware of, of the fact that I could be a writer, let alone working on this show. Uh, yeah, so to have that combination is was a huge moment for me also she was brilliant brilliant casting (laughs) she always is (laughs) but yes she was particularly brilliant in this case I think it was it was a it was a wonderful choice not just because she's talented but because of her physicality just like she just is I think I feel like in so many ways like before she ever said a word it was already expressing that like this interpretation of Medusa is very different than than many, not not in relation to the book necessarily, but just in relation to the world of presentations of, of Medusa, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in addition to that, she's just such a good actor. So final question. Since you are here to discuss specifically uh, 105, that's what you um, requested, mm-hmm. what bead would you design... <laughs> Oh my god, I cannot believe I didn't prepare. I didn't even <laughs> ask you this. I did not prepare for this. Um, okay. What bead would you design to that you would offer at the end of the summer if this episode were the summer? If this episode were the summer. I mean, part of me wants it to be the throne because, mm-hmm. you know, that is not only uh, a good uh, central piece of this episode, but also like, you know, something that was is specific to what we did in our adaptation. So that feels like I should pick it. But what I want to pick is one of the shadow drawings from the, from the projection. (laughs) Yeah. I think, uh, but I don't know which one, like, uh, maybe I'm going to, I'm going to choose this. I'm going to choose the one of Hera when you see Hephaestus inside of her. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, because I actually, yeah, I'm totally choosing that because I feel like that is not only for this episode, but for the whole show, because Mm. we, because we have spent so much time talking about parents and children. Yeah. That's my choice. That's a perfect one. That's the one I should have chosen. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm the guest, so I get to go first. Maybe following this conversation, wait, the fates are in that episode. Yes, they are. I'm obviously. There you go. I'm, 
I'm I'm doing their their ball of thread, their ball of uh, yarn, their electric blue ball mm. of yarn. Wasn't that? Didn't you pick that for our first ever our lightning? Yes, cape but I did the socks for that one, so I'm just mm. it's slightly different. <laughs> oh, you could do the yarn with the needles. Yes, you could do the yarn with, with the, needles. the two needles. Mm. That that would make a nice composition. Mm-hmm. It would. <laughs> Maybe I'll do the the triple Venn diagram. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. The one I made for my brothers and I. Oh, okay. Yeah, just send me that (laughs) one and I'll... Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) So it's two brothers and you, so you're the Athena in this story? Mm. Yeah, I'm the uh, eldest daughter. (laughs) There you go. You are the Athena in this story. I love it. It's all coming together. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's all, like, that's it. It's a perfect podcast episode. Like, we brought it full circle to Emily's family and her being the Athena and her family. Uh (laughs) There you go. Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut, and thank you, Daphne, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was great fun. Until the next time. Yeah. <laughs> Please go ahead and plug all of the all of the many things that you do. Uh, okay. Uh, well, you know, there's Percy Jackson and the Olympians. <laughs> uh, in addition to that, uh, for for your listeners who are not small children, I would say also if you're if you're enjoying this. Uh, you should watch my favorite show in the world, Black Sails, mm-hmm. and also uh, the other show that I work on with John Steinberg and Dan Schatz, which is The Old Man. Yeah. And while you watch Black Sails, go listen to Fathoms Deep. <laughs> oh, right. That too, right? Yes, I have a podcast called Fathoms Deep, and you should listen to it. I forget about that part. <laughs> How could you forget? <laughs> I know. If you liked the weird way I talked here like (laughs) there's hours of that waiting for you in my own podcast (laughs) and now post Daphne conversation Phoebe here to give a big shout out to Nick Burain for the intro of this episode it's terrifying and wonderful thank you we love you and now that we've wrapped up here I want to say thank you to our patrons RK Window Wells Emily Ann Bonnie Roman Consul Latino Kaya Patty VCK, Bethany from Public Works, Sydney Fox, Joke, Reina Avila Ramirez Ariano, Charlie McNeil, Bronte Libo, Chief and Plays, Robert Gamer, Kels, Kari, and Layla. If you'd like to join us over on Patreon, you can find the link to do that in the description of this episode or in our link tree on all of our social media at PJOPod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also find the link to our merch shop there or at monsterdonut.redbubble.com. And please continue to send in all of your thoughts and questions and analysis about this season so far. We are nearing the end, which means that we'll be doing a wrap-up soon. So send your thoughts in either at any of those social medias or to monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com. That's all for now. We'll see you later. Bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.